the General Mills Radio Adventure Theater. Welcome. I'm Tom Bosley, bringing you the world of adventure, the world of your imagination, a world as vast as the universe, which you can enjoy through the magic of radio. All you need to do is listen. Are you upset with today's headlines? Worried about the high cost of living? Want to get away from it all? CBS offers you Escape. It's a two-fisted, quick-triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and never misses. Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. Tonight, we'll escape into three suspenseful adventures. And I'm so excited to bring these to you. Escape originally was a presentation of great writers' uh, adventure tales, basically, and so each week they would present another adventure from the past presented by a great writer. Well, they kind of moved away from that over time and went to kind of suspenseful adventures brought to you by um, current writers, more or less, with the um, less frequent presentation of classic writers. But in 1977, when Adventure Theater came on the air, it tried to recapture that feeling of great adventures from the past that Escape had done. So they're very similar to the early episodes of Escape. So I thought bringing these together with you in the past few weeks would be a great way to present these. So we start off with an Escape episode called Diamond as Big as the Ritz. And it is an F. Scott Fitzgerald presentation that where he was the writer of this. And it was a short story that he did, and this is Escape's take on that. Following that, we will have Gulliver's Travels, which is a Jonathan Swift story that's going to be on Adventure Theater. And then after that, we get a chance to be with the Three Musketeers, in Adventure Theater's presentation of The Man in the Iron Mask, written by Alexander Dumas. So I think you have three great stories by three great writers presented on three great radio shows. So I hope you're going to enjoy all three. And let's get started and get into this wonderful night of adventure. It's 2017, by the way, and I hope you're enjoying our suspense summer suspense uh, escape or summer what is it called summer <laughs> escape into suspense and this is escape and these are suspenseful so enjoy here we go escape escape tonight to a fabulous world where there is a diamond as big as the Ritz The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations presents Escape, a new series of programs of which this, the third, is 
The Diamond as Big as the Ritz by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Produced and directed by William N. Robeson. In a country as large as ours, there are many odd and wonderful corners hidden away. But none more fabulous and wonderful than the one conceived in the imagination of F. Scott Fitzgerald and located in the pages of his famous short story, The Diamond as Big as the Ritz. It is described in the words of John Unger, 20 years old, impressionable, and quite willing to swear to the truth of this whole strange affair. I'd been going to the St. Midas Prep School for a couple of years, and this was my second summer vacation. I'd met this fellow, Percy Washington, during the winter and got to be pretty good friends with him. Only, I didn't know about his family or where he came from or anything like that. Of course, I knew he must be rich, because all the fellas at St. Midas come from wealthy families. So, when he invited me to spend the summer at his home out west someplace, that was okay by me. Well, we'd been on the train overnight when he first mentioned it. I don't even remember now what led up to it. We'd been talking about first one thing, then another. Exactly where is your home, Percy? I mean, you bought the train tickets and all. It's in Montana, sort of. Montana? Oh, yes. It's a pretty wild country, isn't it? Mm, some of it is. Well, now, you take Hades, Missouri, where I come from. It's been settled for 150 years. One of the first towns on the Mississippi River. Indeed. Oh, sure. That's very interesting. Well, I sure do appreciate you not making jokes about it. You know, the way some of the fellas do when I say, I come from Hades. <laughs> Why, my father's plantation stretches John, from... John, my... do you know that my father is the richest man in the world? Oh? By far the richest... Well, I read about a man that paid taxes on a $5 million income. Small fry. If my father paid tax on his real income, he'd disrupt the whole economy of the United States. No kidding. I like rich people. And the richer a fellow is, the better I like him. My father could buy out all the millionaires in the country and not even know he'd done it. Is that a fact? Well, I visited the Schlitzer Murphys once. They're plenty rich. Why, their daughter Vivian's got rubies as big as hen's eggs. And sapphires that glow like headlamps. I like jewels. Always have. I used to collect them instead of stamps. And diamonds. Well, the Schlitzer Murphys had diamonds as big as walnuts. Oh, that's nothing. Huh? Nothing at all. My father has a diamond as big as the Ritz. Ah. <laughs> uh-huh. Please, I'm not joking. But... You mean as big as the Ritz-Carlton Hotel? Exactly. My father has a diamond as big as the Ritz. Well, from there on, it was something like a dream. We got off the train about dusk at a little whistle stop called Fish, Montana. (laughs) There wasn't anything there, not even a station. Just a broken-down old buggy and four or five sheep herders lounging beside the track and, I suppose, wondering who we were. Anyway, Percy and I climbed into the buggy, and without saying a word, the driver cracked his whip, and off we went. I don't know how far we traveled. We didn't seem to be following any road. After an hour or so, it got dark, but the driver kept right on, never saying a word. I hope you'll pardon this inconvenience, John. But we have to take certain precautions, you know. 
Oh, that's all right. Anyway, we're almost there. Your home, you mean? Oh, no, to the place where we consider it safe to transfer. Transfer? What do you mean? There's the signal now. Headlights. Pull up the horse, Absom. Here we are. An automobile. But how... Well, there's no road. Oh, this car's specially built. Doesn't need roads. Welcome home, master. Good evening, Gigsum. Well, come on, John. Let's get in. What the... That door opened by itself. Sonically controlled, you know. Gosh. Hey, what's this car made out of? Silver? No, platinum. And those are emeralds in the hubcaps. And the upholstering. It's fur. Mink. You're ready, master. Anytime, Gigsum. You've probably noticed the exceptional brightness of the headlights. The lenses are cut from diamonds. Boy, what a car. And this old junk heap. We use it for a station wagon. What are we stopping for? This is just a deserted canyon. Oh, we're not there yet, John. It's a little further. Wait, you'll see. Hello, No way! Percy, what's that? That noise? They're sending the hooks down. Hooks? Yes, to attach to the wheels. You know, that's what Gixom is doing now. Oh, but... Oh, yes, I forgot to mention. Gixom will look after you during the visit. Look after me? Your personal valet. Of course, there'll be other slaves available, too, whenever you need them. Do you have a lot of slaves? Oh, three or four hundred, I suppose. Oh, already, Gigsum? Yes, master. Hello! Haste away! Hey, look! Look, we're leaving the ground! Yes, there's a hoist up there on top of the cliff. Has cables about a quarter of a mile long. But what for? Oh, it's the only way in. <laughs> Imagine, hoisting an automobile a quarter of a mile up the side of a cliff. It's nothing, really. As you may have guessed, John, this is not going to be like anything you ever saw before in your life. <laughs> John, there it is. That's your home? Oh, it's magnificent. Palatial. It's not a bad little place. How big is it? I suppose you mean the number of rooms. I think it's around 140. But Father may remember exactly. Then, of course, there are other buildings. Slaves' quarters and things. Why hasn't anybody ever found out about it? This place, I mean. Well, for one thing, it's the only five square miles in the United States that have never been surveyed. Huh? Why not? Oh, things were arranged. I don't see how that's possible. Believe me, it hasn't been easy. I understand Grandfather had to bribe three government bureaus, a vice president, and half of Congress once to keep this place off of the maps. Oh, but surely somebody stumbled onto it. Uh, Prospectors, people like that? Oh, yes, that happens occasionally. Then, of course, we have to arrange things. You mean... Not always. Usually, we just take them prisoner and keep them. Same as the aviators. Oh, planes come here? Well, once in a while, they fly over. Of course, they never get away. We have nine anti-aircraft batteries around the hill here. You... You shoot them down? Oh, yes, great sport. It does upset Mother a bit, though. 
And there's always a chance that one might get away. That's father's greatest worry. Well, this place, this whole thing, it's, it's fantastic. Oh, come now, John. I picked you for a fellow with his feet on the ground. And you haven't seen anything yet, you know. This is only the beginning. And it was only the beginning. We crossed the acres of lawn and entered the great chateau. And from that moment on, vision upon vision tumbled together in a gigantic kaleidoscope of color, symmetry, and exquisite harmony. But there were corridors lined with gleaming crystals lit by lamps cut from emerald. And there were great halls carpeted with chinchilla fur and ermine, and some with floors of clear transparency flaming in the shifting glow of a myriad-colored fire beneath them. And there was a white-haired man, pink-faced and pleasant, who was Percy's father, and a lovely lady, with dark hair piled high on her head, like a fragile queen, who was Percy's mother. Soft music came from hidden places. Perfumes filled the air. Exotic foods and wines more rare than pearls. And finally, sitting in my chair in the great banquet hall, I quietly fell asleep. I thought there could be no more nor greater wonders. I was wrong. There were many more and greater ones. And one of them I discovered the next morning in the garden. Miss Kismine. You're John Unger and you're a friend of my brother. Are you from the East? Uh, no. Well, at least not exactly. I'm from Hades. Oh. Missouri. Would you like to sit down here on the grass? Well, yeah, sure I would. I'm going east to school this fall. Do you suppose I'll like it? I think so. Of course, it'll be different from all this. Well, that's what Jasmine says. And she's in the East now. I've never been outside. Who's Jasmine? My sister. She's older than I am. I hope you won't be offended, but... Well, you're the most beautiful girl I've ever seen. Yes, I know. What? <laughs> I surprised you, didn't I? A year ago, I would have said thank you. But Father says it's very necessary to learn to take things for granted. So now I just take it for granted that I'm beautiful, you see? You're pretty sophisticated, aren't you? Oh, I'm not at all. I think sophisticated young people are terribly common. I'm not a bit like that. Oh, I didn't really mean it. I only said it to tease you. Well, I'm glad. I wouldn't want you to think anything like that. Why, I don't smoke or drink even. And I never read a thing except poetry. I was only kidding. I believe girls should enjoy their youth in a wholesome sort of way. Oh, so do I. I like you, John. I wish you'd spend some of your time with me this summer... Not all with Percy. Oh, I will kiss mine. I will. You may be in love with me if you'd like to. I'm absolutely fresh ground, you know. I am in love with you. But of course we'll have to meet secretly. My parents wouldn't permit it if they knew. Well, then that's what we'll do. Well, I have to go now. I'm supposed to be with Mother at 11. Uh, aren't you going to ask me for a kiss? Jasmine says boys always do nowadays. Well, some of them do. But not me. We don't expect nice girls to do that sort of thing. 
in Hades. It was a funny thing. Percy's family were polite, friendly, always smiling. And yet all the time I had a feeling that some terrible and golden mystery lay hidden just around the corner. A few days after I'd met Kismine, Percy remarked casually that an unusual event had occurred. A man had escaped from the cage. I didn't know what he meant then. But the next morning I was walking with Percy's father on the grounds of the estate. The slaves' quarters are there, Mr. Unger. Oh. Yes, they're very nice. Well, they're adequate. During one period of my youth, I became absurdly idealistic and allowed them to live in luxury. I even equipped their rooms with tile baths. <laughs> I suppose they use the bathtubs to keep coal in. Mr. Schlitzer Murphy told I me I should once... imagine the opinions of Mr. Schlitzer Murphy are of little importance. They did not use the tubs for coal. They bathed in them. Unfortunately, several caught cold and died. So, of course, I had the baths removed. Shall we move on? Mr. Washington, Percy said something about a man escaping from the cage. I didn't quite get it. The cage, eh? Well, perhaps you'd like to see it. It might prove interesting just as a novelty. It's over here. These trees. They're 60 feet tall, and, and they have roses blooming all over them. Rather interesting development by a Swiss botanist. They are the only ones in the world. I'll be darned. Though I suppose you'll see them all over the country in a few years, huh? No. No, these are the only ones. That was arranged. Well, here we are. The cage. It's a pit dug in the ground. And a grating on top. Oh, yes, it's not really a cage, except in uh, a certain sense. Well, boys, how are you getting along? Yeah, come on down here and see. Throw him in, buddy, go ahead. How many men are down there? About 50, as I recall. Who are they? Oh, aviators we've shot down, wandering prospectors, men of that sort. Yes, but why are they kept there? They've all had the common misfortune of having discovered El Dorado. Gentlemen, I'm sure you'd like to know that your companion who departed without my permission has been taken care of. He was shot. He was shot by some of my agents in 14 different places. Golf, Mr. Unger? They found him then? The man who got away? Those places were towns. My agents were over eager. None of them could offer a positive identification. I'm afraid the man may still be at large. So you see, it's not all utopia here. We do have our difficulties. <laughs> Isn't it a little unnecessary, holding them like that? Well, not at all. It's the only way to keep this place hidden. Yes, I guess that must be important. Uh, Percy was telling me something on the train. I thought he was just kidding. But he said you had a diamond as big as the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. As a matter of fact, it's much bigger than the Ritz. Much bigger. <laughs> Well, summer went on, and I was more and more in love with Kismine. Oh, she was priceless, exquisite, like no other girl in the world. After a couple of weeks, I kissed her, of course, and I was really in love for the first time. Oh, I should have known. 
I should have put two and two together when Percy's father showed me the cage. But I didn't until one morning late in the summer, I'd slipped off with Kismine to the Rose Garden. Kismine, I think we ought to elope. Oh, I don't know. It would be much nicer to be married here. But then it would be more romantic to elope. Yeah, all the Sunday supplements would write stories about fabulous heiress elopes with... You are fabulous, you know. I knew an heiress from Omaha once. I don't think you'd like her. She visited my sister here. Oh, you've had other guests then, huh? Well, yes, we've had a few. Wasn't your father ever afraid they might talk outside? Mm, To some extent. Oh, let's talk about something pleasanter. What's so unpleasant about it? Well, I grew quite fond of some of them. You mean they told and your father... Oh, they didn't get a chance to. Father had to be sure. That's murder. What else could we do? In the cage, well, they'd have been a constant reproach to us. And Father does it so nicely. They're always drugged in their sleep, and then we tell their families they died of scarlet fever in Butte. I'm not sure how that affects the statistics there. Of all the horrible... Oh, it is not. After all, it would be terribly boring here without ever having anybody. Why, Father and Mother have sacrificed some of their best friends. Well, you're no better than the... Well, then, that's what they plan to do with me. Oh, couldn't you forget it? And be nice to me until you're put away. It's only for two or three weeks. You'd go on this way, kissing, talking about love, when you know I'm not much better than a corpse? You're not a corpse. You're not. I won't have you saying I kissed a corpse. Oh, that wasn't what I said. You did, too? I did not. You said that... Just a moment. Father. Who kissed a corpse? Well, nobody. We were joking. You two haven't any business here anyway. Kiss mine. Uh, Go read. Go play golf. Don't let me find you here when I come back. Yes, Father. Good day, children. You see? Now he knows. You've spoiled everything. You don't really love me. Kiss mine, you... Look, tell me. What's the reason for all this secrecy? What if you are rich and have this place? Why would it be so terrible if anybody found out about it? Why, it's on account of the diamond, of course. Diamond? What is this diamond all of you talk about? Well, it's the... Oh, you'd better ask Percy. I'm always getting things mixed up. Well, I will ask him. And another thing, I'm getting out of here tonight if I have to dig through the mountains. I'm going back east. Take me with you. No. Why not? His mind, dear, your father wouldn't permit it. If you won't take me, I'll go tell him I want to marry you. No, you can't do that. He'd bump me off this afternoon. Oh, please take me, darling. We'll be terribly poor and very happy. And I'll cook things for you. Oh, herbs and berries and things. Won't that be fun? You will, won't you, John? Well, my head was really in a whirl. This whole thing was fantastic. And so was the family, even Kismine. I couldn't think of anything to do, but... Well, I rushed to see Percy. But, John, why didn't you ask me before? Because I thought you were kidding all the time. (laughs) I know you wouldn't have believed me if I'd told you. Yeah, well, I'm ready to believe anything now. Well, it was Grandfather who started the whole thing. Purely by accident. He came out here from Virginia after the war between the states and stumbled onto it. Onto what? The diamond. That's what made this all possible, of course. Grandfather spent two years going around to different cities of the world selling bits of it. Then he started building this place. He put his money in jewels. But father found that radium took much less space. But why the secrecy? Oh, it just wouldn't do if anyone found out. Ruined the economy of the world. 
the thing's too big. And this has been going on for three generations, then. The cage and, and this thing of inviting friends. Oh, yes. You see, there wasn't really any danger before airplanes. They are what worry us. You knew when you invited me here what would happen. Please, John. I thought you'd be more sensible about it. After all, you can see my position. Oh, yeah. Well, where is it? Where do you keep this diamond that's caused so cockeyed much trouble? Oh, I thought you'd guessed. You've noticed the hill the chateau stands on. Yes. It contains a cubic mile. And, except for a thin covering of dirt, it's one big, solid diamond. It was nearly midnight. I don't know what woke me, but... All of a sudden, I was staring across the patches of moonlight spotting the ermine carpet of my bedroom. Staring at three slaves I'd never seen before. They just slipped inside the door and stood there, each with a vicious length of shiny copper wire. The official executioners. I lay there on the bed watching them, counting heartbeats, not daring to move, not daring not to move. They didn't know I'd wakened. And they began edging across the room. Come on, all three of you. There's no time now for this. All hell's broken loose. Hurry! I took one long, deep breath. The first one in several moments. And then I was out of the bed in an instant, throwing on my clothes and dashing through the long crystal corridor to Kismine's room. Kismine, are you awake? So they woke you up, too. If you mean three of your father's oh, slaves. no, airplanes. Airplanes? So that's what it is. At least a dozen. I saw them crossing against the moon. Oh, look, they're circling way over there. You think they're here on purpose? Oh, yes. They dropped warnings to father. It's that man who got away from the cage, you know. Oh, good for him. Yes, wasn't he clever? Well, I think we'll open up on them any second now. Open up? Yes, our anti-aircraft. Oh, this is going to be thrilling. Thrilling? Oh, look, they're in range now. Bravo! Bravo! Just mine, get away from that window! Oh, good heavens, did you see that? Yes, and we've got to get out of here. Can't you understand? They'll bomb the chateau next. I know. There's a little grove across from the side of the mountains. We always keep one of the cars there. Oh, we have a nice view of everything. A nice view? Kismine, you don't seem to understand. They mean business. They're out to finish off you and your whole family. Oh, but it all seems so silly. Or when you come right down to it, they've never even met us. <laughs> What time is it, John? Is it morning yet? I don't know. I've lost my watch. Seems to be getting lighter, all right. It's quieter, too. Well, they've knocked out your father's guns. Every last one of them. It won't be long now. Oh, it seems such a shame. The family put so much work on the place. Everything's always been so pleasant. Yeah. Well, you better get some sleep, Kismine. I'm going to walk down the path a little ways. Oh, you'll come back? Yes, Kismine. I'll come back. At the edge of the wood, I stopped and looked out across the valley toward the wrecked chateau standing on its diamond hill in the center. The bombing had stopped. The planes droned over the far rim of the plateau, seeking some sort of formation. Then on a little knoll just below me, three men appeared suddenly from the underbrush. The first one strode imperiously ahead, and the other two bore a heavy burden between them. It was Mr. Washington and two of the slaves. I stepped behind a rock and stood motionless, watching them. All right. 
This is far enough. We'll stop here. Now, hoist it up. Hold it there. Both together. Easy now. There. The burden they held up to the heavens was an immense diamond, cut and polished, catching the first faint rays of the dawn and gleaming like a fragment of the morning star. Now, you out there. You there. I could see no one else anywhere in view. You above there. I want you to understand this is only a sample. I'll give you a thousand cut as fine, set in pedestals of platinum, and I'll build you a temple a thousand feet high, cast of solid gold, and on the top of it, I'll put one diamond a hundred feet across, set there forever to catch the rays of your sun. A thought began to dawn on me. I couldn't believe it. I'll letter your name on the temple in emeralds. And I'll see that the whole world worships at its base. All you have to do is make everything the way it was before. Mr. Washington was offering a bribe to God. He stopped talking and the three of them stood there looking up at the heavens, waiting for an answer. And then at the far end of the valley, out of those same silent heavens, blossomed the white puffs of parachutes. The man who tried to bribe God looked up and saw them, became old in an instant, and turning with lowered head, walked down the path toward the chateau. With sudden premonition, I whirled and headed for the spot where I'd left Kismine. Kismine in the car that needed no roads. Haven't we gone far enough, John? I suppose. We're ten miles from the chateau. Well, it's all so hectic. This rushing about and losing sleep and everything. Hand me those field glasses. Here they are. Well, can you see anything? No. Wait. Hmm. What is it? It's your father and mother. And Percy. Yes, and the two slaves still carrying that big diamond. Oh, wait. They're going in a tunnel down below the chateau. So that's it. They've got an underground escape. No, I remember now. The mountain's wired. Some kind of atom bomb. Atom? Atomic bomb? Oh, that's it. Father's had it for years. He always said it would disintegrate the whole works, diamond and all. Of course, he only regarded it as a last resort. So he'd rather have it like that. Well, they're all inside the tunnel now. The troopers are moving in. I don't suppose there's really anything to be done about it now. And there wasn't. I keep thinking about things the way they were. It was all so pleasant. Oh, I don't suppose it will be ever exactly like that again. Not ever, Kismine. And maybe it never was. Youth's a time for dreaming, and dreams die, too. I'll probably have to take in washing. Oh, but, of course, we'll be very happy. What will we do, John? Do? Oh, we can love a while underneath the stars. <laughs> That's a form of divine drunkenness we can all try. And then there may be other diamonds in the world. Who knows? And even though it's a shabby gift, there's always disillusion. Turn up your collar, Kismine, before you catch pneumonia. 
Let's go to sleep. The Diamond as Big as the Ritz by F. Scott Fitzgerald was adapted for radio by Les Crutchfield and produced and directed by William N. Robeson, with Jack Edwards Jr. as John, Danny Merrill as Percy, and Linda Mason as Kismine. The special musical score was conceived and conducted by Cy Fuhr. Escape is presented by the Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations each week at this time. Next week, we invite you to escape to the China Seas with Joseph Conrad in his gripping story of a typhoon. And so, good night until next week at this time, when it will again be time to escape. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Radio Adventure Theater. I'm Tom Bosley. Welcome again into the magical world of radio, where your imagination can take you by the hand, through the air, to the most exciting and even incredible adventures you ever dreamed of. I don't usually say incredible, but today's adventure story is just that. Sometimes I hate to say how long ago something was first published, lest you think it's old hat or old-fashioned. Gulliver's Travels, which you'll hear in the next hour, was written 250 years ago. And believe me, it could have been yesterday. story of adventure, Gulliver's Travels, was written by Jonathan Swift and adapted especially for the General Mills Radio Adventure Theater by G. Frederick Lewis. It stars Michael Tolan. I'll be back in a few moments with Act One. I hate to give the serious reasons why Jonathan Swift wrote Gulliver's Travels, because for you, it's just an extraordinary adventure story. Forget the meaning underneath and listen to the travels of a man of the 1700s to strange lands meeting strange people. You'll be amazed and amused, so no double meaning. In those days, lots of people must have thought Swift was writing about real people. Otherwise, why would the author not put his name on the book? Which he didn't. It was many years before anybody found out who really wrote Gulliver's Travels. And now, as our tour guide, here is Gulliver himself. Let me tell you of my visit to the land of magic, which lies west of California, somewhere in the North Pacific Ocean. The natives called it the island of Gullab Dubdrib, which translated means... Only sorcerers and magicians live there. I'd been becalmed in the Pacific and drifted for days. Finally, I came upon this island, landed, beached my boat, and from the shore I could see a palace. I walked to the gate and rang a bell. Who goes there? Lemuel Gulliver. Lemuel Gulliver who? 
Lemuel Gulliver, doctor, scientist, sea captain, world traveler. Who do you wish to see? Oh, I'm not particular. How about the head man? You may enter. The governor will see you. Really? How do you know he'll see me? He sees everybody. We are now in the inner palace chamber. Be seated. Is the headman particular the which... Uh... governor. Well, is he particular which of these three stools I sit on? No. Only sitting on the floor or standing on your head is not permitted. I don't see any windows or doors in here. How does he... Oh. Gracious goodness, how did you do that? Lemuel Gulliver, Esquire. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. How, how did you appear like that? Like what? Walking through the wall. It's... It's like magic. <laughs> it is not like magic, dear Gulliver. It is magic. And you're the head of... I mean, you're the... The governing uh... magical sorcerer, the chief wizard. Oh, I have a lot of names. Is that the way you always come into a room? Just snap your fingers and there you are? When I snap my fingers, all mankind awaits my orders. Really? Everybody? Anywhere? Past or present. Amazing. Can you make... Anybody appear or disappear? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Anybody present, anybody past. Alexander the Great? Julius Caesar? Uh, Adam and Eve? Oh, any of them, any of them, but one at a time. Uh, first, Gulliver, I want you to tell me a little about yourself. Uh, you say you're a world traveler? I certainly am. I haven't stopped traveling in seven years. Uh, you're so lucky not to be tied down. I've often wondered what it would be like to get out of the country for a spell. Yeah. Uh, well, Gulliver, let's have a report on where you've been, huh? I'll be honest. I was frightened. If the governor didn't like me or what I had to tell him, he could snap his fingers and I'd be gone. Gone forever. So believe me, I made my story as good as I could. Why, Gulliver, you're joking. Little people. Six inches high, little people called Lilliputians. Half a foot high only when they're fully grown adults. So, as I said, my, my ship was wrecked. And I was knocked unconscious. And when I woke up, I was stretched out on the ground, held by a thousand tiny ropes the Lilliputians had tied me down with. Well, I guess with a castaway of your size, they weren't taking any chances. Huh? That's what I figured. I couldn't move. Ha, huh, ha. Huh. And, and then, then what happened? I was very hungry, as you can imagine. And I told them so. Oh, then they spoke English. Words of one syllable. So I said, come on now, feed me, I'm starving. So the little people ran to get ladders and put them up against my side, and hundreds of them climbed on top of me, walked to my mouth with baskets of meat and loaves of bread. The meat was cooked lamb and beef, but tiny as a lark's wings. And the bread, <laughs> well, a bullet is larger than a Lilliputian loaf of bread. It took hours. No, no, I'm going to stop you right there, Gulliver. Frankly, I find your story hard to believe, and I don't like lies. I swear to you, I'm not lying. How can I prove it? Well, you can't, but I can. Now, I'm going to snap my fingers, and if I can make a crowd of Lilliputians appear right here... I, uh, I hope they're listening. As well, here goes. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I will be gone. 
they're, they're amazing. <laughs> Perfect little dolls. Look at how well dressed they are. <laughs> they're so cute. Oh, you see that one on a tiny horse with the little flag bearers on either side? That's the Emperor of Lilliput. Uh, hi, Emperor. I, I, I can't make out what he's saying. There's such a racket down there. They're surprised at seeing me again. And you too. Uh, yes, Emperor. Yes, that's right. I'm very glad to have been of some small service. Uh, you see, Governor, the Lilliputians had a terrible problem, and I gave them a hand. Oh, oh, oh. They were going to be invaded by the Empire of Lafescu just across the sea. And the enemy had a fleet of 800 ships. My, 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 my. No, I'm, uh, I'm just telling the governor here, Emperor, of our sea adventure. So, one day, I waded out into their ocean. I mean, it was a pretty deep, large puddle. And I hooked up each of the enemy's ships and towed the whole darn Blafescu fleet back to Lilliput with me. I captured it. Oh, yeah, well, Gulliver, I do believe your story. How could I not? Uh, now, I'll snap my fingers so that all these fellows can get back to Lilliput before they all get stiff necks looking up at us. <laughs> I was, of course, fascinated by this ability of the governor of the Land of Magic to be able to call up anybody at will. I'd always wanted to know how Shakespeare wrote his plays... Heaven knows I'd never again get a chance like this. You name them, I'll get them. Shakespeare? All right. William Shakespeare, center stage, please. Who calleth me from the world beyond? Uh, Mr. Shakespeare, I'm afraid I did. I'm Lemuel Gulliver. I have never met a great poet, playwright, writer before, and I just could not pass up this opportunity. Writer, yes. Poet, perhaps. Playwright, only because our actors banded together into a repertory company, and I wrote for them. Repertory company? Does that mean you repeated the plays you wrote? You've hit it. In later days, what we did will be called a stock company. We started the whole idea. Stocks, meaning shares. It was your own company of actors doing your own plays. Right, Mr. Shakespeare? Wrong. Not only my plays. We'd perform 15 plays a month. That's a different drama every two days. And there wasn't always time to write. I was an actor, too. I played Hamlet's Ghost. And, oh, I've quite a list of very good acting credits. In a year, I might act in 50 to 60 plays. How did you find time for all that, Mr. Shakespeare? And I taught drama and comedy classes. Our method of acting to the younger players... Especially the boys who played the women's parts. Well, I've seen boys do that. They carried off rather well. Well, up to a point. A boy can imitate a woman being flirtatious or gay or even unhappy. But they don't know how to act motherly. Is that so? So you couldn't write any parts for mothers? No, I could not. My heroines, Cordelia, Desdemona, Ophelia, Jessica, Kate, only appear... With their fathers. What did you do with the mothers? They never appear. And, uh, Gulliver, I think we have kept Mr. Shakespeare too long. Oh, not at all, no. I always enjoy a return engagement. It's been a real pleasure. Very enlightening indeed. Especially about the boys playing girls' parts. Well, goodbye to each and all of you. Farewell. <laughs> That was highly entertaining. What an actor. 
Uh, do we have time for one more before lunch? Oh, be my guest. I, I was thinking, Governor. Uh, a sea captain like myself. Say, an admiral? Could you get Christopher Columbus to appear? I'd love to meet him. Oh. oh are you sure? You know, Columbus didn't die a happy man. No, he's a depressing fellow, very depressing. I know. We've talked. How can I not meet him? He's one of the great explorers of all time. We're in the same business. Well, of course, if you put it that way, Christopher Columbus, discoverer of the new world. Uh, Senor Governor. Governor. Uh, Welcome, uh, Columbus. This is... uh, Lemuel Gulliver, he's a sea captain, a great admirer of yours. He wants to ask you a few questions. Uh, that has been the problem of my whole life, senor. Questions. And senor Gulliver, one does not always have the answers. You know, the Queen Isabella, I could not make her understand. To find the East, I had to sail west. But you proved you were right. Ah, prove, prove. What do they care? I crossed the ocean four times. Four times. Eight years later, they shipped me back to Spain in chains. A prisoner. <laughs> what a way to bring back a hero like me. <laughs> what did King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella do then? <laughs> oh, of course. I was released. They gave me 2,000 ducats. It was very emotional. I cried. They cried. Uh, Senor Columbus, huh? if you had to do it all over again... Uh, yes, yes, I would do it all over again. <laughs> Find a new world. Oh, it was written in the stars. My fate. Did I answer your questions, Senor Bolivar? Uh, uh, Gulliver. Uh, Yes, you did. Without my having to ask them. As well. uh, Goodbye, Columbus. By the time I'd been on the Magic Island a week and had called up as many great people of history as I could think of, I'd had enough. Believe me, there is nothing as disappointing as learning the truth about the past. It made me realize that most of the exploits, heroic acts, and accomplishments of yesterday were mostly by accident and rarely appreciated. Gulliver took leave of the governor of Club Dubdrib and on the 21st of April, 1709, sailed up into the river of Clumegnig, a seaport town and there experienced one of the most unbelievable of all his visits to strange and unknown places. I'll be back shortly with Act Two. The General Mills Radio Adventure Theater will return shortly. So here is Lemuel Gulliver again traveling. He arrived up the river Clumegnig, right outside the town of Lugnag. Oh, I'll spell that for you. L-U-G-G-N-A-G-G. Lugnag. But Gulliver's crew were suspicious of this strange world traveler who came from far off England. So they whispered to the Lugnag customs official to watch Gulliver. He might be up to no good. You say your name is Emmanuel Tulliver? Oh, no, no. Lemuel Gulliver. Ah. Uh, may we see your passport? Passport? What? What's that? A little book to enable you to pass our port. I have no such book. Well, where could I secure such a thing? Ah. 
That presents a problem. A problem? What problem? Well, how can we at the Lugnag port of entry know you are who you say you are? Oh, well, I can prove that easily enough. By relating to you some of my travels. No one else but a Gulliver would travel as I do or where I do. Uh, may I? By all means. Well, I was aboard my ship, the Adventure, some months ago, bound for India, when I happened to land on the coast of the Great Tartary. Are you familiar with the Great Tartary, sir? Well, I've heard of it, but not seen it. Now, just as well. The Great Tartary is inhabited by giants 80 feet high. Whew. They caught me. Then they sold me to the queen of the Great Tartary. Who's same height? No, she was a bit smaller. 70 feet. Subsequently, I was... One moment, Mr. Gulliver, you're making it most difficult for me to believe. It was difficult for me to believe. Subsequently, I had adventures with giant rats the size of lions and just as ferocious. Oh, dear. Adventures with a dwarf. Poor chap, only 30 feet high. Adventures with wasps the size of partridges, oh. apples the size of barrels, and hailstones the size of tennis balls. Oh, I, I, I presume you escaped this land of giants. Oh, indeed I did. Quite by accident. I see. Uh, how? A large bird swooped down, lifted up the dwelling I was living in, dropped me into the sea, and I was rescued by a ship on its way back to England. Uh, sir, all of this is too fantastic for me to believe. What does that mean? That before we can allow you to roam about our country, you will have to be detained. We shall apply to the officials in charge to tell us what must be done with you. How long will that take? Well, I shall write today. I would say an answer would be forthcoming in two weeks. A guard, take this gentleman to the Lugnard Detention Center, please. That was bad luck. I was placed in a house with a garden and sentry. I enjoyed walking every day in the garden, and from time to time I would be visited by certain citizens of Lugnag. Then one day I was told the king himself wished me to be brought to the palace. Uh, when? As soon as possible. Well, then what are we waiting for? Mustn't keep kings waiting. But what about the problem? Well, what problem? I don't have State Department clearance for you to enter the country. That's the question. I'll tell you what. Why don't I keep this date with His Majesty, and I'll put it to him? You will? Well, I, I don't know. Going over the head of my superiors, they might not like it. Well, I won't say anything about the Customs Department. Just that, uh, by the way, I'm being held because I don't have a passport, and, and so on and so on. Oh, if you would be so good. Not at all. Uh, is he a nice king? I really don't know. None of his subjects have ever met him. What? You mean no one? Well, he's got this palace guard around him. So far as I know, he doesn't see anyone except foreign dignitaries. That customs official was quite right. Tight security, palace guards, long corridors, square rooms, round rooms, oval rooms, and finally, the palace anteroom. Yes, yes, what is it? Uh, <clears throat> my name's Lemuel Gulliver. I... I understand the king wants to see me. Uh, have you prepared talking papers for the meeting? Well, I, I haven't prepared anything. I thought he might like to ask me about my travels and I could tell him a few stories. Uh, well, uh, the king works much better off a piece of paper than face to face. <laughs> that way, he has the input on a need-to-know basis. <laughs> oh, goodness, sir. Uh, all right, uh, a talking paper. <laughs> you learn something every day. 
I, I was told the king doesn't see many people. Well, a fact of life, Gulliver. Uh, we can't put up with any interruptions when the king is thinking big thoughts on big problems. Or maybe that's why he sent for me. Travel is my second name. Ah, well, you don't say. Uh, Gulliver Travel? Uh, uh, what's yours, sir? Uh, chicken Stalker. Okay, Chicken Stalker. Uh, Mr. Chicken Stalker, you're the... You're the... I do the downfield blocking for the king. Now, whenever there's a new game plan or a feasibility study, I check all four corners and then I put my chop mark on it. It is my job to run the palace on zero fallibility. Oh. You know something, Mr. Chicken Stalker? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, good, 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 good. Could, couldn't be better, couldn't be better. I'll note that in today's decision papers. I like you, Gulliver. Tell you what, we'll skip phase one and phase two and go right on to phase three. Does that bring me closer to meeting the king? <laughs> closer is the word. You know the routine. Oh, I'm a stranger here. I don't know anything. Oh, fine, Gulliver. Now, follow this. <clears throat> I set up a time when it's the king's gracious pleasure for you to have the honor to lick the dust in front of his footstool. <laughs> That's a new one on me. Uh, tell me what I do. Now, the king will be in the square office. When you're admitted, you crawl on your belly and lick the floor as you advance. Yeah. Lick the floor as I advance. Mm -hmm. uh, now, when you're, say, uh, four yards from the throne, raise yourself up on your knees and strike your forehead seven times on the ground. And then you say the following words. Ickpling, glothrob, scrustumbliop, grlibbonk. I'd better write that down so I can memorize it. What does that mean in English, Okay. Uh, may I call you okay? <laughs> Certainly can. Uh, may I call you Leo? Uh, you better not. Everybody calls me Gulliver. <laughs> now, uh, yes, uh, the meaning. It plain, glothrob, and so on, and so, 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 zonk. Yes, it means, may your celestial majesty outlive the sun 11 moons and a half. Now, <clears throat> at that point, the king will say to me, Chicken Stalker, have that man get to his feet. Now, you get up, and you say, Fluff grin, yalarik, mere push, which means my tongue is in the mouth of a friend. You mean because I've licked so much dust? No, 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 no. Your tongue is in the mouth of a friend means you will get an interpreter and then get on with the interview. You see, the king speaks only Lugnack. <laughs> but I don't know any interpreters. I'm your interpreter. Okay, chicken soccer. Stick with me, Gulliver. I guess I'll have to, okay? <laughs> no other options. Now, <clears throat> if you don't, you are off the reservation. I decided that learning all that lugnag, meeting the king, licking the dust from the square office, just wasn't worth it. So the next day, on the pretext of having to rehearse with Chicken Stalker at the palace, instead I headed for the wharf and made a deal with a boatman to sell me a sailboat. I named it the Adventure 2, set sail immediately. And true to my luck, a storm came up. And what do you think happened? My boat couldn't take it. It broke apart. The mast fell on my head. And when I woke up, a horse was nudging me. A horse that talked. That's what I said. Yahoo! <laughs> Wake up. Hey. Hey, stop that. He is for horses. Get up, Yahoo. What? What's this Yahoo? My name's Gulliver. Lemuel Gulliver. I said stand up. What is this? A 
talking horse giving orders? Oh, all right, all right. I, I'm getting up. Where am I? Oh, this is who you name country. What? Who you name country? Follow me, Yahoo. Why do you call me Yahoo? I told you what my name was. Well, all those creatures of your description are called Yahoos. Yahoos are our workmen, our slaves. <laughs> You're joking. You mean in this country, humans slave to horses? Who runs the country? We do. The who you number? Well, I don't care what you call yourselves. You do look exactly like horses. Down to the tail and the last hoof. Are you coming with me or aren't you? Is it far? What difference should that make? We tell you walk, you walk. Look, look, Sir Horse. If you are bewitched or whatever, that's all right with me. Now, obviously, you are superior to most horses I've ever been acquainted with. Now, try to understand my point of view, will you? I am a poor, distressed Englishman driven by misfortune upon your coast. I am very tired, extremely. I've been shipwrecked. Yahoo! You walk. I order you to walk. Or would you prefer a hard, swift kick? I prefer to walk. Or rather, I drag myself. After about three miles, Mr. Horse and I came to his house. A long building with a low roof covered in straw and a floor of hard clay. Between you and me... It looked like a stable with a fireplace at one end. Go on in, Yahoo. You first. Uh, very nice. You, uh, you live here all alone? Bo, I should say not. My family's large, but right now they're all out for a canter. Good for the health. Now that I look more closely at you, Yahoo, I would say you're a very strange specimen, to say nothing of your, ah, conversational abilities. Do you know I was thinking the very same thing about you? Your skin is so peculiar, I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, uh, Yahoo, let me touch it. Hey, hey, take your hoof from my sleeve. Oh, oh, is that what you call sleeve? Yahoo's call it an arm. Oh, I think I understand you. You believe that my clothing is part of my body, is that it? Clothing? Well, this comes off, see? Here, this, uh, this is a jacket. And under that, I'm wearing a shirt. Uh, your hooves, they come off too? <laughs> yes, they do. But we call them shoes and stockings. <laughs> You're a very strange yahoo. Look, if, if you're done with examining me, I'd like to know, do, uh, do people live around here? People. Well, let's say yahoos who look like me. Oh, we have plenty of yahoos, but none of them look like you. No. Would you like to see them? Why not? All right. Knock my hoof on the floor and they come. Right, now, you three yahoos stand there. This is a new yahoo who just arrived. Great heavens. These, these ugly monsters, these are yahoos? They... They look like gorillas. Hey, hey, get him off me. He's, he's choking me, for heaven's sake. Do something. I don't just stand there. Pull this gorilla away. Ow! Stop that. Stop or I'll whip you. No, help me, please, someone. Help! To be an adventurous Englishman of the 1700s, to have braved Lilliputians, giants, magicians, and to end one's days in the kingdom of horses being choked to death by gorilla-like slaves 
Well, that certainly is not the way Gulliver would have planned it. What happens next, I shall have for you when I return shortly with Act Three. The General Mills Radio Adventure Theater will return shortly. Jonathan Swift wasn't just writing fairy tales for children when he wrote Gulliver's Travels. Well, not that I'm knocking fairy tales. Believe me, some of the greatest adventure stories ever put on paper are fairy tales. But Swift was showing up English society for what it was in his day. And if you feel there's a lot of truth in the peculiar characters you're meeting today, well, so do I. And now... Back to the unfortunate Gulliver. Oh, help! Get him off me! I'll stop that, you oh. Stop! Or I'll whip the hide off you! Now back off! Go ahead! Into the corner! Are you all right, Gulliver? Oh, those... Those creatures are dangerous. I... I wouldn't have them around the house. Well, it's extremely rare they behave in such an animalistic fashion. Went berserk. Oh. You too. Fetch some food here. Are you hungry, Gulliver? Some hay and a bucket of all gourmet oats. Now go. Well, Gulliver, you uh, you speak of human beings. Our yahoos are a low species. We keep them under control. Otherwise, who knows what mischief they'd be into. We Huyanims have long ago learned the only way to handle these specimens is to give them simple tasks to do and beat them if they don't do it. My dear friend, there is more to life than sleeping and eating. One has to feed one's mind, too. And one's spirit. Ah, we don't have mind and spirit to feed. <laughs> but there's so much missing. Literature, poetry, music, even food. Do you eat anything besides hay and oats? You don't eat that? I hope you didn't just order that gourmet meal for me. Oh, yes, I did. I thought you'd be hungry. Mr. Horse, I don't know for how long I shall be stranded here. But if that's all the food you have, it looks like I shall never be leaving. I'll starve to death first. I went to bed hungry that night. I also went to bed stiff and sore and bruised from that yahoo's choking. <laughs> Top of the morning to you, Gulliver Yahoo. Hmm? Oh. oh. Well, at least you're calling me Gulliver. That's something. Oh, I, I am famished. Worse, we were talking yesterday about your diet. Do you like milk? Milk? Do you have cows? Of course we do. Well, certainly I drink milk. Do you people ever make cheese? Uh, cheese? I must teach you how to make cheese from milk and a few other things. Say, if, if you get me some oats... Oh, you will eat oats. No, not raw, but I may be able to make something edible out of it. Something I can get down. Well, how will you do that? You sit me in front of a fire, give me two stones and some water, and I'll show you. I'm going to make a simple kind of oat cake. Do you understand, Mr. Horse? Oh, Gulliver, I have been patient with you, and I will stop calling you Yahoo if you stop calling me a horse. We are all of us here called Huyanims. Uh, all right, let me try to say it. Huyanim. 
Who you name? Ah, <laughs> who you name? I've got it, Mister Who you name? And no misters, whatever that is. No, of course. How silly of me. There must be mares and colts here too, right? Well, anyway, uh, oats. Ah, uh, coming up. Yahoo! Bring the oats. The best oats. Now, I begin by heating the oats by the fire. Now, take up a handful and rub it between my hands. And, with an expert movement, toss what I have rubbed straight into the air. Hey, you see what happens? The chaff blows away and the oat kernels drop. <coughs> amazing. No, it hasn't begun to become amazing yet. Uh, got two stones? Oh, yes, yes, here. Now, I, uh, I grind the grain between these two stones. And grind away. Uh, is this water in this bowl? That's what you asked for. Uh-huh. Add water to the ground grain, making this, uh, paste. See? Now, I, uh, I shape the paste into a cake. There. There. Done. I push the oat cake closer to the fire and wait. Mm-hmm. I'll, uh, I'll have some of that milk you promised me. More. Mm-hmm. Oh, Yahoo! Bring the bowl of milk. They don't speak, but they do understand you. Only because we have trained them. Put the milk bowl on the ground next to Gulliver and then you may leave. This is the last step of my first cooking lesson, old chap. The oat cake is brown on top. Notice? I uh, flip it over to toast it a bit on the other side. There. Then, uh, break off a piece. Take a drink of milk. A bit of oat cake. Hmm. Hmm, not bad. Not bad at all. And uh, that is my breakfast. (laughs) You can live on on that. No, not entirely, but, uh... I saw some edible greens and herbs outside. I can eat those raw or boiled. Boiled? Well, well, what's that? Uh, heating on the fire. Ah, would would it be too much to ask if you would uh, remove uh, those... Uh, Shoes? And those long white... uh, Uh, Hose, uh, stockings. Oh, uh, certainly. Uh, I I am curious to see how your hooves look. Are they curled with claws like a yahoo's? Or uh, cloven as ours are? Or... Uh, here, first the shoe. And now the hose. And there it is. Those five little pink things at the end are called the uh, toes. This, this is a foot. Well, it is quite plain to see, Gulliver, that you are a perfect yahoo. I have never seen such a perfect one before. Uh, now I have a favor to ask of you. Those uh, yahoos you have enslaved, if you treat them as humans, not animals, they may become human. Would you consider it? Oh, I'll put it to a vote, but our experience makes me doubt it. The yahoos may be primitive, but your favorite occupation would never occur to them. What, pray? Whatever little mischief they make, they would never go to war. I was rather enjoying my stay with these intelligent talking horses... Nevertheless, I had a hankering to move on. Every day I go down to the beach, 
just in case I might see a ship. And finally, one day, I was rewarded. A ship lay at anchor offshore, and I stood watching as a longboat put out. As the sailors beached the boat, someone who I thought looked familiar hopped out. Kind sir, I'm looking for Emmanuel Tolliver. Would you direct me where I could find him? Uh, you're the customs official from Ludnag. Well, uh, so I am. Uh, how did you know? Well, don't you recognize me, sir? Uh, can't say I do. But in Ludnag, no one is permitted to wear a beard. It hides the expression of the face. Well, you, sir, have quite a splendid growth. Yeah, only because there is no such thing as a razor or a barber in Huyanim country. Do I know you? Well, if you're looking for Emmanuel Tolliver, I am not he. But if it's Lemuel Gulliver you want, I am he. You are Gulliver? I am. And I suggest we get a move on, because those horses bearing down on us run this country. And if we get caught, we'll all end up in a stable with bars. Hmm. Now tell your men to shove the boat off. Let's get out of here. this moment, I would give anything not to have been so impetuous. A diet of oats, dandelion salad, and milk with yahoos to wait on me and horses to talk to was preferable to being in chains as I am now, imprisoned in Lugnag. I was told the king was furious that a visiting dignitary refused to lick his way into the royal presence. So they'd been looking for me and found me. Too bad. Oh, uh, hello, okay. <laughs> so, you went off the reservation. Hmm? The <laughs> king got angry, huh? Well, you see, I'm a restless fellow. I had to be off to the next adventure. Well, you can't always think of yourself. Now, I had told the king all about you. And when you skipped town, oh, I was left with egg all over my face. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, okay. It was thoughtless, but what could I do? Await the pleasure of the king. Cyclone, whirlwind. I found myself sucked up high into the air, spun around and around crazily, and at last, dumped, as has happened to me so often in my life, into the water, miles out at sea. I never saw the land of Lugnag again, or the land of Huyanans, or the Magic Land, or Lilliput. Were they all destroyed by the hurricane? Or do they exist somewhere today? Hold on. I say, I see, I see a boat on the horizon. Uh, you will excuse me if I pull off my shirt to use as a signal flag. Do you suppose that ship is headed back to England? Or are they bound for a new and strange land? <laughs> Samuel Gulliver is created by Jonathan Swift. He is such a real and admirable person that even today people like him. Direct and decent, full of goodwill, a scientist, a doctor, a keen observer of what's going on around him. The kind of adventurous spirit you wouldn't mind having as a member of your own family. Is that what Jonathan Swift really had in mind? Tell you in a moment. Laboratory safety team.
What did Jonathan Swift set out to do with his story of Gulliver's travels? Well, putting it in today's terms, Swift was knocking the establishment. He also knocked a couple of 18th century heads together and opened a lot of people's eyes merely by having Gulliver voyaging his imaginary world and saying, Hey, what's going on here? And you know, there's nothing wrong with that. included Michael Tolan, Ian Martin, Earl Hammond, and Court Benson. The entire production was under the direction of Hyman Brown. This is Tom Bosley inviting you to return to the General Mills Radio Adventure Theater for another exciting tale you can hear through the magic of radio. The General Mills Radio Adventure Theater is recommended by NEA, the National Education Association. The General Mills Radio Adventure Theater. Welcome again to the magic world of radio, where your imagination can lead you to more thrilling adventures than you could possibly dream of. I'm Tom Bosley, and today we take a sprinkling of historical truth for some of the people you will meet during this next hour really lived. And mix in well a great adventure story with a touch of mystery. I'm not going to beat about the bush any longer. I'll tell you just what that mystery is. It is who really was the man in the Iron Mask. Our adventure story, The Man in the Iron Mask, was written by Alexander Dumas and adapted especially for the General Mills Radio Adventure Theater by G. Frederick Lewis and stars Paul Hecht. I'll be back shortly with Act One. History tells us that during the reign of Louis XIV in France, a mysterious prisoner was hidden in that prison of prisons, the Bastille. No one knew who he was, what his crime was, or what he looked like. This because he always wore an iron mask. The mystery has never been solved to this day. Alexander Dumas has taken this fact and woven about it a thrilling tale of intrigue and adventure. And to tell that tale, he's entrusted no one else but one of his famous three musketeers, Aramis. 
Yes, I am Aramis. Once a musketeer, now a bishop. And although I have become a man of the cloth, my heart has remained as adventurous as ever. And as in the days when Porthos, Athos, D'Artagnan, and I held off armies with our swords and fought duels for honor, this longing, this desire to help the helpless never left me. I had heard of a young man of 21 confined to the Bastille for eight years. In fact, since he was 13. I made myself known to the jailers of that fortress prison and said I had come to hear the lad's confession. I was taken to the prisoner's cell. Are you prisoner Marciali? Who are you? I am the Bishop of Vannes. What do you wish with me? Uh, may I sit down? Well, there is only one chair. It is yours. I prefer to remain on this cot lying down. Uh, are you well? As well as one could expect in a dungeon of the Bastille. You do not suffer? No. You have nothing to regret? Nothing? Not even your liberty? What do you call liberty, Bishop? I call liberty the happiness of going wherever a 21-year-old may wish to go. The flowers... The stars, the air, light. I have what is better than light. I have the sun. A friend who comes to visit me every day without the permission of my jailer or the governor of the Bastille. He comes in at the window, increases from ten o'clock till midday, and then decreases from one to three, slowly. When my friend's last ray disappears, I've enjoyed his presence for four hours. Is that not enough? <clears throat> Your name is Philippe, is it not? You know a great deal about me. Yet not enough. Bishop, I do not wish to talk with you any longer. Please go. One last question. Have you... Have you no mirror or, or looking glass? What are those two words? What do they mean? They are two pieces of furniture which reflect objects so that you may see your own face. As you see mine now. I have never known such things. Even before I was brought here in the house of the people I lived with, there were no mirrors. What people did you live with? I have said too much already. Please, go. Uh, perhaps next time I shall come again. God, uh... Wait a minute. What do you mean? What good are mirrors to me? None to you now, Philippe. But someday, pray God, soon... They will mean a great deal. So that I can see myself? For what and who you really are. The resemblance in age, face, and voice the young prisoner bore to King Louis of France was astounding. Try as I might, I could not bring young Philippe out of my mind. The entire episode rang with injustice. I formulated a plan which took no little time, secrecy, and effort. And when all was ready, went to see the Minister of Finance of King Louis' household, an old friend, Monsieur Fouquet. We met in the garden of his country estates. I am glad you came to see me, Aramis. I am worried. Worried? Why? I hope I have not bitten off more than I can chew. Afford is what I mean. Hmm? 
the gala ball, dinner, and everything I am planning for the king's birthday draws nearer and nearer, and my money flows faster <laughs> and faster. <laughs> you, who are minister of finance for the king, surely you do not worry about money. How can you say that? I do not touch that. I am spending my own money. Well, have I not been telling you, Fouquet? The many weeks I have been your guest here that I shall personally see to it you will be recompensed. Dear old friend, you will forgive me if I am somewhat skeptical how a poor bishop, formerly an abbey, and before that a penniless musketeer, could secure me millions to entertain the king. You are a man of little faith. Faith? I love the king and I'm quite prepared to go bankrupt to honor his birthday. <laughs> what, uh, what brings you here today, Aramis? Are you staying? Oh, no, no. I am on my way back to Paris. You came all this distance to reassure me I shall have the money to entertain his majesty? Uh, well, I came to ask you, Fouquet, for a certain letter. Huh? A letter de cachet, to be exact. That is a dangerous request. It is a sealed order for death. Uh, sometimes. You wish to have someone placed in the Bastille? Oh, no, on the contrary, to let someone out. Huh? A poor devil by the name of Seldon. He has been in prison ten years for two Latin verses he made against the Jesuits. Is that all he did? That's all. He committed no other crime? Beyond this, he is as innocent as you or I. Well, I shall write such a letter immediately. What did you say his name was? Seldon. Two nights later, I presented myself to the governor of the Bastille, Baisemont. I had known him in the old days when he was but a guard. <laughs> well, I, I'm honored and I'm happy, old friend, for your visit. Oh, it's my pleasure. Now, I lead a lonely life here in the Bastille. Do you know, Aramis, after all, I'm only the keeper of a prison for His Majesty, and yet I'm avoided by all who knew me as though I had some dread, incurable disease. Well, it is not you who they reject. It is the office you hold. Oh, there is not one Frenchman who does not fear someday a letter de cachet will be sent bearing his name. Any man could suddenly fall out of favor with King Louis and find himself condemned to a lifetime of four stone walls. Uh, I know, I know, I know. But to me, my good old musketeer, to me, this is only a job of work. Well, to be commended, to be commended. Well, that, uh, acquaint me of your doings these past ten years. <laughs> the happy-go-lucky life you three musketeers <laughs> led, eh, what? Uh, yes, oh, no longer. I became a priest. No. And then an abbe... Really? And now, I am a bishop. Excuse me. A bishop, indeed. Who would have thought one of the greatest swordsmen in France, a bishop? Yes, what is it, Francois? What are you standing in the door for? May I bring in the dinner, sir? Well, of course you may. What else do you have to do? <clears throat> Place the pheasant and the quail right there before me. I shall come. Uh, courier just arrived with a message. Oh, don't bother me with such nonsense when I'm carving. The message is marked urgent, sir. Everything is marked urgent these days. All right, leave it there. What shall I tell the courier? Now, tell him to go to the devil. I'll, I'll see about it tomorrow. Now, go now. Go, 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 go. If I may observe... A letter brought by a courier to the governor of the Bastille may indeed be urgent. Uh, perhaps you're right. A king's order is sacred. But it's very tiresome when you're 
sitting with an old friend at a good meal. Ah, but, uh... All right, all right. What did I tell you? Urgent indeed. Then what is it? Some order for a release. Important indeed. Well, it's important to whom it concerns, you will agree, dear Governor. A man who's been in prison for ten years and suddenly it's urgent. It's important. I release him this very minute. This unfortunate man has suffered long enough. Uh, ten years, you tell me? End his suffering. Oh, dear me. You, <laughs> you are a persuasive fellow, I must say. Oh, now let me see. What was the name here of the fellow? Ah, oh, Selden, yes. Uh, uh, tell the turnkey to come here. I have an order to release a prisoner. The instructions to free this Seldon I had Fouquet sign lay on the table. It took only the twinkling of an eye, and I changed it for another paper folded in exactly the same manner. We ate, we drank, we toasted, and then the governor's man returned. Uh, Francois, tell the turnkey to open the cell of Monsieur Seldon, number three. Uh, Seldon? You said uh, Seldon, I think? Uh, of course I said Seldon, the name of the man to be set free. No, 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 you mean Marciali. Marciali? Oh, no, no, no. Seldon. No, I think you are making a mistake. I, I read the order, dear friend. It said... It m- said Seldon. No, I... I read the order also. Seldon, S-C-L-D-O-N. In letters as large as that. Go take a second look. Go ahead. My dear Aramis, read. Uh, yes, I, I, I see the name. Marciali. Uh, see for yourself. Marciali? Why, so it is. Dear me, Marciali. I saw the name, Seldon. Indeed, there was a blot under the name, but I saw it with my own eyes, an ink blot. An ink blot? No, no, no ink blot. No Seldon. No name but Marciali. Well, I, I must have imagined it. Well, go on, Francois. Give the order and have the men brought here. Uh, Marciadi. Yes. Of course. Yes, right here. Ah, Marciadi. This litre de cachet instructs me to release you forthwith. Frankly, if it were not for the good bishop here, you would still be in your cell and I should be having my dessert. You will swear the regulation requires it. Never to reveal anything you have seen or heard in the Bastille. I swear. And now, monsieur, that you are free, where do you intend going? I am here to render the gentleman whatever service he may please to ask. Well, my dear Aramis, will you not remain for dessert and good port wine? Allow me, my dear governor, to come back for it on some rainy day. I feel I must take this fellow back to civilization. Indeed, you are a good man. Charity is a deed, not a word. Well said. Well said. Uh, uh, Francois, show the bishop and this gentleman out, please. Uh, have a, a fine journey to you, Aramis. <laughs> you are a remarkable man. Such kindness will be rewarded. Oh, it will be, Governor. It will be. It would certainly seem that Aramis, the holy musketeer, or if you will, 
the swashbuckling bishop, is planning to place Philippe on the throne of France. Now, why is he so certain that Philippe should be king, that the present King Louis XIV is the pretender and not the rightful ruler? Well, we shall learn more of this extraordinary adventure when I return in just a few minutes with Act Two. The General Mills Radio Adventure Theater will return shortly. The Man in the Iron Mask is one of the most unusual of all of the adventures of the Three Musketeers. Those men of daring-do who attacked armies, assaulted castles, terrified death itself. Indeed, the musketeers were the James Bonds of their time. Nothing daunted them. They were always in the thick of trouble and on the side of right. Which is why Aramis finds himself today more of a musketeer than a bishop. Oh, uh, where are we? You have been asleep, Philippe. We are, I would say, in the middle of the forest of Senar, not many miles from Monsieur Fouquet's castle. Fouquet? Uh, yes, he is giving the king a gala celebration in honor of his 21st birthday. I shall stop the coach now, for I must talk with you quite alone. Hola, uh, coachman! Coachman! Uh, stop the horses. Yes, monsieur! Uh, coachman! Uh, coachman, I wish you to get down now and uh, take a little walk. Uh, uh, do not return for a little while, eh? <coughs> now, Your Majesty, we are quite alone. Your, your Majesty? Well, well, what are you saying? I am saying that the young Louis XIV, who is now on the throne, does not belong there. You are the real king, Philippe of France, his twin brother. I am the real king? King of France? Or soon shall be. Why do you undertake such a daring act upon yourself? When I was a younger man, there were three others and myself. A captain and three musketeers. We lived by one code and one code only. I still live by it, even though I am now a bishop. And that is? One for all and all for one. You are being rescued for all of France. When you came to my cell, Bishop, asking whether I was content, why did you not leave me there? I had made my life in that cell. Because I could not be party to a great injustice. What was unjust? A boy of 13, imprisoned in the Bastille for eight years. Today, he is 21. Is that just? Is that a life for any human? Why am I entitled to more? Because, Philippe, you are of noble birth. Your mother is Queen Anne of Austria, the wife, yes, of Louis XIII, your father. On August the 15th, an evening like tonight, she gave birth to twin sons, two hours apart. Your father, the king, was afraid a second son might dispute the claim of the first, who indeed was the eldest son and cause a civil war in France. So he had you, Philippe, hidden away, first with the family in the country then disguised as a boy called Martiali in the Bastille. But you were born two hours earlier than your twin brother Louis. Therefore, you are the eldest by French law and should inherit the throne of France. But what of my brother, the present king? He will disappear 
We shall remove him from his bed by means of a secret machine I have installed at Monsieur Fouquet's. In a few hours, your brother will retire for the night, a sovereign, and wake up in captivity. And you, his twin, will rule in his place. But why would anyone be deceived? Do we look so much alike? Look, here is a portrait of Louis. Let me hold the carriage lantern high so you can see it. Study it. Here, I now hand you a mirror. Now look at yourself. Oh, there is a likeness. I would challenge your own mother to know you apart. No one shall know we have substituted the rightful king for the imposter. It is a fitting present for your birthday. Since you are twins, you also will be 21 tomorrow. Bishop, if I am king, you shall be a cardinal. And when a cardinal, my prime minister. Your Highness, I wish not for any of that. My life will have been fulfilled if you alone are upon the throne of France. Monsieur Fouquet was a man of extraordinary taste. His castle, furnishings, his gardens were indeed the finest in all France. The food he served at the king's celebration was finer than Louis himself ate at the royal palace of the Louvre. After the banquet, there was a concert, theatricals, the fountains cascading. There were fireworks, all in honor of a 21-year-old king. As the king retired, Aramis, I saw him into his room, Fouquet. It was truly an unforgettable celebration. You think he enjoyed it? Every moment, I am certain of it. Oh. Good night, sir. Good night. Sleep well. I shall sleep happily only if the king himself has a good night. He will. He will. It will be a good night for all of us. Of course, Fouquet had no idea that I had had installed a device well known from the Middle Ages whereby the entire floor of a room can be made to lower to the very cellar itself. What dreams or nightmares Louis experienced, I cannot say. But when he awoke, his gilded bed stood on the earth below the ornate bedroom. Two armed men, masked, clad in cloaks, held high a lantern. It's time to get up. Huh? Huh? Well, what is this? What is the meaning of this jest? There is no jest. Do, do you belong to Monsieur Fouquet? It matters very little to whom we belong. We're your masters, and that is sufficient. But at least you can tell me what, what the two of you uh, want. You'll know, you'll know by and by. Will you be good enough to follow us? I will not stir from this dungeon. If you are obstinate, my young friend, we shall have to roll you up in a cloak and carry you. And if you're stifled there, so much the worse for you. Do you not know who I am? I am King Louis XIV. You may have been a king, but no more. Get up. Where are we? We've driven all night. I want to know where we are. Do you see this pistol? I have it pointed at your head. If you utter one sound at any time, it'll go off. Ah, la, is there a guard on your day? What is it? Oh, Bishop, whatever are you doing driving a coach into the Bastille at this hour of the morning? Good morning, Francois. Extend me your hand to get down, please. Thank you. It's been a long night. Who is that? Uh, proof that even a bishop can be wrong. Uh, guard? Yes, sir? Remain here with the prisoner. I'm going inside. Oh, and uh, fire the pistol at once. 
If the prisoner speaks one word. Francois, take me to the governor. Is he up? Oh, yes, Bishop. He was about to leave for a hunt. Ah, I see him at the door. Governor, I'm glad to find you at this hour. Bishop, is something the matter? Who is that you brought here? Uh, let us go to your rooms. Oh. What, 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 what brings you here? A grave mistake, my dear old friend. It appears you were quite right when I was here last. What, about what? Uh, I shall tell you in the secret seclusion of your rooms. Right about what, Ireland? Uh, about the order of release. Do you remember? Uh, the order to release a prisoner? Uh, we both thought it was Martiali. Well, uh, certainly. Yes. Uh, but you must remember that I didn't believe the order was for Martiali. Uh, my dear Governor, it was a mistake. It was discovered at the Ministry. So that I now bring you an order from the King to set at liberty this uh, Seldon. Seldon? Yes. Are, are you sure this time? Well, read it yourself. Uh, here, I brought it with me. Well, it was by order of His Majesty, prisoner named Seldon. Seldon. Uh-huh. Well, this paper is the, the very order I first saw that night. We supped together. Look, there's the ink blot under the man's name. But what about the other fellow? Oh, uh, Marciali? Oh, I brought him with me. Uh, he is the one down in the courtyard under guard. Well, that's... That's not enough for me. I require a new order to admit him back here to the Bastille. Oh, don't talk such nonsense, Governor. You talk like a child. Where is the order you received respecting Martiali? Well, I have it here on my desk. Uh, may I... Uh... Good uh, heavens! You, you can't hear up royal instructions. Yes, but I have. Into small pieces. Oh. And now I will set them alight with your candle. Oh, oh I'm a lost man. No, no, far from it, my good fellow. Now, I have brought you back this Martiali, and it is just the same as if he had never left your Bastille, so shut him up immediately. He's a most dangerous character. Dangerous? How so? No one told me. Well, haven't, haven't you realized the resemblance between this Martiali and... Let me whisper this into your ear. Hmm? Yes, yes. And the king. <gasps> and what do you think was the very first use the prisoner made of his liberty? He pretended he was the king of France. He dressed himself up. Even now, he is wearing a duplicate of the king's nightgown. Great heavens. The man is mad. Well, obviously. Now, he must be kept absolutely incommunicado. Now, believe me, if the king should hear any more of this fellow, it could mean a death sentence. Let me out. I say I am the king. You have locked up the king of France. Let me out! Oh, I will ring for the governor. I'll ring. Oh, there are no bells. Of course not. This is the Bastille. Someone come! Someone help me! Let me out! It is a conspiracy. I have been drawn into a trap. Last night, pretensions about my birthday. Trapped. But Fouquet cannot be alone in this affair. That voice I heard asking for the governor, I know that voice. Ah, the bishop. Yes. What was his other name? The, uh, the musketeer. The, the bishop of... Uh, but why? There must be money behind all this. If one musketeer has a hand in it, then there are three. The three musketeers. 
tears, of course. Let me out. We shall see if you can keep me here. This chair, I'll throw it at the door. Bring me that governor. I am the king. Can you hear me? I am the king. King Louis of France. I demand to be released. Hold on a minute, Are you mad? What's the matter with you this morning? Monsieur, are you the governor of the Bastille? Get out of your head. Be quiet. Listen. I am the king of France. The king. Bring me the governor of the Bastille immediately. Now, what is all this? I desire the governor of the Bastille to be brought to me. Oh, come, my boy. You've always been very quiet and reasonable, but now that you're getting vicious, I must give you warning. You... You give me warning? How dare you let me... I'm sorry to have had to render you unconscious, my good Marciali. I hope when you awaken, some of your senses will have returned. The Bastille was an endless hell on Earth. The king, who had written many orders, or lettres de cachet, as they were called, depriving his personal enemies of their freedom, was now getting a good measure of his own punishment. Meanwhile, at Fouquet's castle, Philippe of France, hidden away, awaited the return of Aramis. Looking exactly like the kidnapped king will not be enough. Will Philippe be able to convince the courtiers, friends, his own mother, Anne of Austria, that he is really the king of France? I'll return shortly with Act Three. Well, I'll... The General Mills Radio Adventure Theater will return shortly. Time for all what? It requires courage and daring to accomplish what one of the three musketeers has just done. Once Aramis had made up his mind what was right and what was not, all the ingenuity, defiance, and single-mindedness of which he was capable were brought into play. It was early morning, and much had to be done to restore the French throne to Philippe. Could he pass for his twin brother? He was twin in looks, in voice, in manner, in all, save soul and conscience. Bishop, I have been awaiting you. Philippe, all is done. How? Exactly as we expected. Did he resist? Uh, not until he was placed in a cell. There was some noise, then quiet, and then I came away. Did the governor of the Bastille suspect anything? Nothing. The resemblance to you was complete. <laughs> to have gained the throne of France over my brother in such a way, as long as he is in the Bastille, I shall not have an easy night's rest. I have already provided for that. In a few days, we will take Louis out of his prison and send him out of the country to a place of exile so remote. People can return from exile. To a place of exile so distant, I was going to say, that human strength and the duration of human life would not be enough for his return. This morning, when the royal bed rose from the cellar and this bedroom looked as it must have looked when my brother retired, I looked at the bed at the very indentations where my brother had lain, his head on that pillow. I looked at his handkerchief, still wet with his tears. Your Majesty, away with such weakness. You and you alone should have occupied this bed. 
If your father and mother had not abandoned you, that handkerchief embroidered with the arms of France would be yours. Had you been left in the royal cradle, you, Philippe of France, would have been the honored guest at your birthday last night. Oh, think not of the usurper now in the Bastille. You are the heir presumptive. Have no pity for a brother who never gave a thought to your years of suffering. You instruct me to harden my heart, but that is not the king I would be. Was Monsieur Fouquet part of this plot against Louis? No, no, not at all. The disappearing bed was placed here at my instruction. He knew nothing. Fouquet will be as faithful and fond of you as he was of your brother. Stop. Please, stop. Bishop, uh, Aramis, whatever you are, wish to be called, I set forth my first command as King of France. From henceforth, I do not wish you ever to speak again of that creature now residing in the Bastille. You, Philippe, needed more time, more instruction for me to assume the first day's royal duties. I told the court he had slept poorly and would receive no one until the next day. I knew then I needed a confidant, an aide, and I could think of no one more trustworthy than our host, Fouquet himself. I am sorry to hear the king is unwell. Oh, it's nothing serious, Fouquet. A little too much birthday, perhaps, but I can tell you this. Any debts you have incurred for this magnificent gala will be repaid you. I have his assurances. The king? Precisely. Hard to believe. He is as though a new man. <laughs> Without knowing what you have said, dear friend, you have hit upon something. What? I have? What? A, a secret? Do you remember the birth of Louis XIV? I was not in France. Is that the secret? Well, I know it was rumored the queen gave birth to two sons and the youngest died. That is not so. They both lived. Twins. The children grew up, one on the throne... The other hidden away, and then under an assumed name, thrown into the Bastille. Oh, no. Both ought to have been kings. Twins are one person in two bodies. So alike. Even their mother could not tell them apart. Not even today. Today? What do you mean? I mean, my dear friend, that if there had ever been any attempt to substitute the brother in the Bastille for the brother in the royal bed, I defy you to prove it. You mean I would not know the king? What king? The one who despises you, scorns you, makes it necessary for you to entertain him? Or the king who has compassion for you will not allow you to bankrupt yourself on his account? The king who loves you? The king of yesterday? The king of yesterday is in the Bastille, in the place of his victim. Heaven preserve us. Who took him there? I did. No, no, no. You have dethroned the king? Imprisoned him? It is done. That was yesterday. Now we must think of today and the tomorrows to come. Such an action was committed here in my house. In the royal bedchamber. Under my roof, you committed this crime, a crime which dishonors my name forever. You are speaking too loudly, Fouquet. Take care. Come not one step closer to me, Bishop Aramis. Imitation, holy man. Fouquet, put away that sword. It is drawn to avenge treason in my house. A crime upon my guest. What are you doing? Oh. A bishop he is with a sword under his cassock. A sword with which to defend myself only. I see I was mistaken in you, Fouquet. Stop where you are. I shall have at you. Please, old friend. <coughs> friend, you are not... You are a... Don't be put out of the way. Listen to me. Listen to me, Fouquet. You must... You have... 
disarmed me. My sword lies on the ground. Will you kill me now? It was not I who drew first. Traitor! Kill me if you will. Pick up your sword and sheathe it. I shall now do the same. We do not see eye to eye in anything. I am afraid what was left of an old friendship has now been cut to ribbons. Where are you going? To Paris, with all the speed I can muster. You are making a mistake which will mortally wound France for centuries to come. I am following my heart, my conscience, and trying to say what is left of my honor. I advise you, Aramis, to do the same. I did not know what to do, where to turn. Warn the prince. Without me, he would be utterly helpless after everything I tried to build. Ah... Uh... Come to assassinate me? Sire, do you not recognize the most faithful of your... You are free. Please, Your Majesty. I shall tell you all that I know of this plot to unseat you from the throne. Believe me, I am your friend. And so all my efforts to return the throne to the rightful heir came to naught. Fouquet removed Louis from the Bastille and no one ever knew he had been there. Were it not for the ties of blood that bound brother to brother an execution would have taken place. Had that happened, the very fears of their father would have been realized, for such a death could not have remained secret long. Instead, I, the Bishop of Vannes, was chosen to confront young Philippe with this sentence. So, we are both to be sentenced together, Aramis. Philippe, can you ever forgive me? It would never occur to me to do otherwise. I remember that day in the Bastille... How affectionately you spoke of your friend, the son, who visited you four hours a day in that little cell. We are all prisoners, good bishop, of ourselves. What are the king's orders? My last letter to Cachet. It says, Aramis, Bishop of Vannes, will conduct a prisoner to the Isle of Sainte Marguerite. Having done that, the bishop will give himself up to the guards and be placed in a solitary cell. Philippe of France from henceforth will cover his face with an iron visor which the prisoner shall not raise without peril to his life. His face will never again be seen. Louis XIV of France. Where does fact leave off? And where does fiction begin? This much we do know. An historical fact. That during the reign of Louis XIV, a mysterious prisoner was interned, first in the Bastille, and later on the Isle of Saint-Marguerite. No one ever discovered what his crime was, who he was, or what he looked like. For until his death, his face was always covered. He was the man in the iron mask. I shall be back in a few moments. Once in a blue moon, along will come a great writer who dreams up characters so vivid they appear to have a life of their own. Such an author was Alexander Dumas. Among his unforgettable characters who still live for me are the three musketeers, Porthos, Athos, Aramis, 
and their leader and captain, D'Artagnan. And another Dumas creation, the famous Count of Monte Cristo. And not only has Alexander Dumas made his heroes and villains come to life, he has made those days as vital, immediate, exciting, and adventurous as our 1970s. Perhaps even more so. Our cast included Paul Hecht, Russell Horton, Court Benson, and William Griffiths. The entire production was under the direction of Hyman Brown. This is Tom Bosley inviting you to return to the General Mills Radio Adventure Theater for another exciting tale you can hear through the magic of radio. The General Mills Radio Adventure Theater is recommended by NEA, the National Education Association.